So this morning we're going to turn our attention to uh, one of my top four favorite foundations of mindfulness. <laughs> it's right up there. It's right up there. Um, and it's uh, turning our attention to uh, the Pali word is Vedana. As I've described, um, it's, <clears throat> it's deeply embedded in our nervous system to add what's called a valence. It's adding a layer to our sensory input, evaluating and adding this experiential tone to all of our sensory input. Whether that sensory input is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There's actually a range, um, so it can be very pleasant, mildly pleasant, neutral, mildly unpleasant, or very unpleasant. Somewhere on that scale, all of our sense data coming in through the ears, the eyes, the nose, mouth, the tongue, all the thoughts that come, our inner voice, images, sense of memory, sense of future, those all have a tone to them that it's pleasant and pleasant or neutral. And so this is, has been a part of all of our experience since we were born. And yet it's not something that we are often very familiar with, even though it's a huge part of what's been reinforced in us. It's often in the background. And yet the reactivity that is caused around this aspect of the mind is huge. And yet uh, for something that would have that much impact, it's surprisingly in the periphery of our, um, our subjective experience. So by bringing this forward, <clears throat> um, we can learn so much about how our mind is reactive, what our mind is truly seeking, the patterns we've developed, um, how we structure our individual lives, how we have structured our collective lives, how we structure societies, nations, why people have gone to war, why different communities are at war with each other, even in our own country. It all can be traced down to Vedana. And the second noble truth of the craving and clinging we do can be seen as a reactivity and a management of this one factor of Vedana. So it plays a key role in Buddhist psychology to begin to attune ourselves to pick up on the Vedana flavor of the stream of our experience. And then seeing if that's where the reactivity is coming from. Is it the Vedana that's causing us to be obsessed about a certain fantasy? Or is it the Vedana that is preventing us from being dropped into the present? Is it the Vedana that has us keep going back to certain memories? Is it the Vedana that doesn't allow us to move on from past experiences? Is it the Vedana that has us obsess about the future and try to manage the future? So when the future becomes a present moment, we've done a lot of Vedana management in anticipation so that when we pass through an experience, we get the least amount of what's unpleasant. Hopefully something that's pleasant 
and the second place is neutral. One of the problems with Vedana management is that if it's done unconsciously, there's a, a pulling away or an aversion to what's unpleasant. There's an over-enchantment of what's pleasant. And there's a boredom and an inability to meet neutral experiences because they don't, they don't give us enough on this pursuit of pleasant and running from unpleasant. Another unconscious thing that happens around Vedana is that if we try a numbing strategy, a numbing strategy on unpleasant, you can't just selectively numb one thing. You have to globally numb. There's no selective numbing on what's unpleasant. If you are giving up on pleasant, you end up also giving up on pleasant. You can't shut your heart down to what's unpleasant and have it expand towards what's pleasant. The whole heart shuts down. And so some of what we've done is to numb out on the pain of life, we end up also numbing out on the pleasures of life. And then living in a kind of a bland, neutral, which is not that satisfying, and it's also not that great a strategy. It cannot keep all unpleasant outside, outside the door. So then the unpleasant tends to be the way we're wired stronger than the pleasant. We're actually uh, biologically wired to be much more sensitive to pain than we are to pleasure. I was reading a, a book by a neuroscientist who was just talking about the nerve endings in skin, an entire book. And or, uh, animals will survive longer um, if they have this radar scan and the sensitivity to pain so that they can re- respond to it. But it's not as advantageous to get that excited about pleasure. And so the pleasures that come are very core. The pleasures that are strong are very core for, um, for species propagation. But the pains that come tend to come in through uh, any door. So <clears throat> one of our challenges is that's how we're wired. And the waking up process coming out of numbness means that we have to know how to then feel unpleasant experiences consciously and then do what we can to uh, alleviate what's unpleasant. But we have to feel it first. And then as we grow our capacity to feel what's unpleasant, we then find we actually can feel more of what's pleasant and we actually can be nourished by what's pleasant. And we actually can do more conscious relationship to what's unpleasant versus having uh, compulsive activities that run, attack, or numb out on what's unpleasant. So it's one factor, this one foundation. Um, the reason it's pulled up forward and to be one of the four is that uh, there's a tremendous amount of reactivity, unconscious, strong unconscious um, tendencies around managing pleasure, pain, and neutrality. And it's a lot of what we're reworking as we wake up. An ability not to seek out what's painful, but to be conscious when painful experiences arise. Being able to tolerate them so we don't just have the old compulsion take over. And then respond consciously. So it's not just about enduring what's painful, 
but responding consciously with wisdom and compassion versus compulsion. So it's a, it plays a large part in our psychology, a large part in why we are caught, and also a large part in how we wake up um, is relating to this factor and becoming more sensitive to it, bringing it from very powerful but peripheral to where at times we can bring it forward and really know you can do your Vedana scan. I was teaching um, on our long-term study program called the Dedicated Practitioner Program. I was teaching on Vedana. I said, okay, people, you got to know your Vedana. You got to know it. You just, just got to do it. You got to know it. And this guy printed out T-shirts, know your Vedana, people. <laughs> so check your Vedana, people. So that's what we're going to do today is heighten that awareness of Vedana. So <clears throat> we all... We all have arrived, we all, that first piece. The second piece of Vedana, and this is really, I'm jumping you right into advanced Vedana. Um, There are two pieces in advanced Vedana. I'm going to just tell you right away, then we can explore it, and you'll have the whole day to explore it. Because you have five senses, and a stream of mental experiences, you can have conflicting Vedana in the stream. So you can have a a pleasant visual experience and an unpleasant auditory experience. Different parts of the body can be neutral, pleasant, and unpleasant. So as you're streaming through, there are multiple Vedanas happening. So as you start to tune into it, that's one thing that people go from not knowing it suddenly it's kind of like too many Vedanas. And you might call a good sit one where many of the sense doors were calm and neutral or in the pleasant. One that's complicated is where the, uh, the Vedana stream has many different kinds in it. And then a really bad experience tends to be when many of the sense doors, um, no matter where you put your attention, it seems to be unpleasant. So that's one. Another with Vedana, and we're going to go over this, so if your cup runneth over at this point, we're going to come back around, is that there's the object of our attention, and that can be sound, sight, smell, taste, body sensations, and the objects that are passing through our mind, different thoughts, memories, plans, songs in our head, images, they can all be pleasant or unpleasant. But there's a Vedna quality to the heart space, to the mind space as well. So you can go on a vacation that tries to get every sense door pleasant, but the mind space is unpleasant you're fighting with your partner, or you're worried about your children, you're worried about your community. So the mind space, no matter how much pleasure you try to put in through the sense doors, the mental space can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This also ends up playing a role in how we wake up, is that we actually want to develop the mind space 
heart space so it stays uh, pleasant or neutral. The mind space doesn't go into its own reactivity and negative space. We can't manage all the sense doors to have them be pleasant. Pain and pleasure will go. The awakening process is that the mind space, the heart space, grows in its capacity so it doesn't slip into unpleasant forms of itself, no matter what we're streaming through in life. An example would be that the people who came to the hospice ward, the volunteers, were in a pleasant heart space, even though what they were connecting to was unpleasant, because the compassion, the willingness to be there, the love that would pour out of them to be of service to people in a time of need, that was pleasant. It's not pleasant like happy, happy, joy, joy, but there's a sense of like the, the mission is beautiful and um, being with somebody, even when they're suffering, the actual heart space of compassion is pleasant, even though what you're in contact with is unpleasant. That's the waking up process, recognizing that there's the mind-heart realm and the, the experiences that are passing through the mind-heart realm. Is that, is that at least intellectually accessible? That's often what people are feeling. They, they haven't unearthed a huge... Going, going from numb to free sometimes passes through pain. So if you're in that process, you might end up feeling like the retreat opened up pain. But as more of that happens and you end up more up from the, the numb avoidant through things that are difficult back to where you can expand and meet the experiences then that's really one of the sense of freedoms that my mind is really not getting twisted up into reactivity, but it's not that everything's gotten pleasant. And yet there is more pleasure because I'm not numb and I can tolerate more of what's unpleasant. And then be able to tolerate what's unpleasant allows you to actually find a deeper solution. If you can't tolerate what's unpleasant, your solutions will be impatient, they'll be forceful, and maybe that's necessary for short-term survival. But sometimes long-term solutions mean you have to be able to feel what's unpleasant so you can meet something consciously. Again, these two elder Quaker women, 
and that I met when I was doing my nuclear test site uh, demonstrations. <clears throat> we were camping in the desert for 10 days doing this nonviolent um, demonstrations. And I just saw them laughing, holding each other, singing to the guards who were arresting them, getting arrested, talking other people out of their anguish, showing up the next day. It's like, where are you drawing that from? Why aren't you resentful? Why aren't you impatient? Like, where is that coming from? So they had steady contact with what was unpleasant. They weren't uh, Pollyannish in a way. They knew how to be there. When I saw these beautiful volunteers on the hospice ward, like, where are you getting that from? How can you show up over and over? And yet, after a year, I also would walk in, and I was just loving people. And that loving people, it's like, of course I'm going to love you, even if you're dying. And that attunement um, is really possible. So as deep as these habits are, they can be changed um, with this type of training. So, yeah. Thank you. That did resonate. Also, when you talked about going into the hospice, you talked about the compassionate heart, and you talked about some of the you know, What's the mind doing then? <clears throat> uh, well, when I first walked in, yeah. it had habits. It had intentions and habits. My intentions were to walk in and offer love and patience. The habit was, oh my God, I've never had this much contact with the dying process. Uh, out of habit, my, my instinctual self wanted to find solutions and make everybody happy and can't we make this go away? But over time, that habit began to melt and it was much more walking in and <clears throat> you know, walking into the ward and seeing three of the beds were empty and knowing that that meant those people had not had made it through the week. And then, but the people who were there, so I take a moment to feel the grief of that and really honor them. And then there was a 20 bed ward. And so there'd be 17 more people, some new and some familiar. And they want bonding, they don't want to be alone. And so they'd see me walk in, remember me from the last week, connect with them. Somebody else would have fallen a degree so they weren't as communicative, see their family. And over time, there's this building of capacity. It's like you start with a small room, and the room gets bigger, and the room gets bigger, and more can actually, you can coexist with more without it triggering a sense of, I can't, I'm tapping out people I can't, I can't meet this experience. Some old thing is arising. I try to make everybody happy because I can't meet this much grief. And then you your heart's in the gym and it gets stronger and it gets bigger. And suddenly it's like, oh, I don't have to make these people happy. I'm going to meet them. And then they're like, oh, thank God you're not trying to make me happy because this is hard. <clears throat> so the heart gets more capable. And then it's the strangest thing. There's this factor of karuna talked about. It's one of the brahma viharas. It's a beautiful factor of heart that it can feel incredible joy and the fragility and the tenderness and even the pain of suffering. But it's, it's as strong as the suffering is, it can hold it and the ability to hold it and meet it and then connect with and commune with uh, life over pain. Actually, it's, it's an incredibly sweet 
heart space to be in. And that's the whole development of compassion, the ability to meet the first noble truth without it causing reactivity is the development of compassion and also this factor of equanimity, the ability to stay balanced in the truth of things and then respond and then respond to the truth of things also. There's room for response, but it's not old habits of unconscious Vedana management. It's actually conscious Vedana management. How do we move out of pain? How do we move towards what's healthy? So it's that development of heart that ends up being the, the, the growing pleasure and the growing sense of well-being of the third noble truth is that we can handle more of the actual textures of life um, without it causing reactivity. And so we feel more free because we can actually meet a stream of experiences that we couldn't before and then have more skillful responses because they're not compulsively driven. We don't feel as uh, bound by old compulsive habits. And we feel like there's new options and that new options is also the taste of mental and emotional freedom because you don't just have to do what's always been done. You can do something new. So it begins with our ability to, to tolerate unpleasant and not <clears throat> obsess about pleasure and to see what it, just feel this, this layer of the heart and the mind that's adding this pleasure, unpleasure, and neutrality. Yeah. Um, I like very much this, this kind of, uh, let's say, interpretation of Vedana. Um, I, I think that there are um, many relationships, uh, even with the third foundation, as uh, this is a quality of mind, of the mind. Mm. So it could be found uh, in, uh, in the list uh, of uh, the qualities of, of mind uh, which are included in, in the third. Yeah. Which are the, the relations? Yeah, and so this foundation is the bridge between um, uh, body. And the third foundation is the exploration of mental and emotional space, not so much the content of, the, of one's attention, but the qualities of one's attention, the quality of the heart and the mind. And so there's um, objects in this room, but there's the room itself. And so many things can pass through this room, but the room can be warm or cool. Um, it can be bright or dim. And so all the objects keep changing, but there's also the quality of the room itself. The heart and the mind is like the, the atmosphere, the internal atmosphere, the room through which experiences are passing through. And Vedana um, is on the, the mental side of the equation. It's, on, it's part of the me uh, mental emotional processing, but it's very tied to um, the... Uh, the objects have a Vedana and the mind has a Vedana. And to, to know that this one quality then bridges both objects and mind because mind has a quality of Vedana and object has a quality of Vedana. And Vedana is an operating 
one of the operating parts of the mind. Um, sorry. No, no. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, Did you wrap it? <laughs> Put it in the fridge. Yeah. I okay, put it in the fridge overnight. Okay, let's warm it up. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> um, I'm thinking about body. And yeah. after we met, I realized, I wondered whether the 32 parts included your throat. And I wondered, and so I recognized that my voice is usually where I can tell what's going on with my body. So I've become very aware of my voice. And so I'm wondering about the qualities of Vedna in the body. And I don't know if this is the right time, but I don't want to add complexity. But um, that's what I'm wondering about Vedna and our bodies. Well, one of the things that, um, and this is a really interesting link um, on a number of, uh, number of, a number of things combine here. Um, one is uh, neurobiology, um, psychology, and Buddhist theory all see that because our nervous system is interwoven through our body, if there's tension in the mind, tension will probably show up in different parts of our body. And so our body does carry some, it does mirror not completely, but it does, there, there are mirror patterns between uh, mental, emotional patterns and patterns in the body. <clears throat> Sometimes you can see something that frightens you. Your mind feels the fear and your body begins to pattern around the fear to protect itself. Even if what you're seeing is not actually dangerous, the body doesn't know it. The body is getting signals from the mind from the brain that there's danger. And so we can go into a panic response about things that uh, happened decades ago. The body doesn't know that that it's memory or actual visual experience. It just knows that the the brain is saying we're in danger. And so the body begins to pattern. And so sometimes, and we've learned this in the the somatic trauma healing community, If I'm talking to you and you go into a topic that brings up fear for me, my body will go into a panic response and then I have to get you to stop talking about what's happening because I'm going through a very kind of like, there's a big shift inside, but I don't know it. I don't, I'm not conscious of it. So there's, um, there's a lot going on that I'm not conscious of, but I can still feel a panic. And what um, mindfulness can do is art, start to show you how these systems are interrelating. And then you, you can learn how to untrigger yourself and recognize, oh, this is a memory and it's got a lot of charge to it, but I'm actually safe here and now exploring a charged memory, watching my throat constrict or my diaphragm constrict or this weight of fatigue coming over me in response to a memory. And then anything in my current life that is similar to what happened in the past, even if it's not nearly as threatening, will still bring up this response. I think we're very close to something dangerous and the body begins to um, go through its changes, 
stress hormones get flooded through the body um, in a fight-flight or shutdown mechanism just because the, the current experience is similar to previous experiences. That's also in the Vedana system. So learning about body and how it responds to its environment and seeing this very deep primitive wiring of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Um, and then being able to rise up consciously within that and seeing if they're actually, you can learn what's happening and then make different choices is the process of untangling these habits and then developing what's actually health, healthy. I don't want to overcome my flight, fright um, system because it will save me if a car is coming, I don't see it. The ability to, to leap back. I don't ever want to get over my fight, flight. I want to be able to have that be one of my systems because it's very good for spontaneous survival. But if it's my only one, or if I go there a lot, or if I'm unconscious, then I'm constantly fighting or fleeing or freezing. Sorry, yeah. I have um, two questions. Yeah. One is, so I'm, just, I'm trying to understand the different levels. So you were saying that objects have Vedana? Or? The, um, the, our heart and mind's connection to an object, yeah. That it's it's like this computer doesn't have Vedna, but my re- response to it, it's it's sort of it's over here. Right. Yeah. And that's that's a that's a response through contact with a sense door. Yeah. And then on top of that, there's a mental Vedna, which is like I like it or I don't like it. Right. It. Um, I can be in an angry mood, and yet taste something sweet. And so the Vedna of the brownie is pleasant, but the mind that's experiencing it is unpleasant. And you know that the Vedna of the brownie is pleasant because it's pleasant to you, right? Like it's right. a subjective it's a, Vedna is a tremendously subjective, and even cult, I mean, individually subjective and culturally subjective. And then within a large culture, there are... One of the things I want to explore later in the morning is how we are in unconscious struggle over cultural norms of how we're all trying to manage what to us is pleasant, what to us is unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Then if you give a certain group dominance, that group gets to um, enforce what they're doing their own Vedana management with a sense of dominance. And then another group then has to be subjected to um, that power structure. And it's possible that everybody could have um, more contact with what is safe if they just saw that there was unconscious, mm-hmm. large-scale group dominant and subordinate uh, Vedana power structures going on. Yeah. My second question, it just, um, this kind of reminds me of the poem called Guest House. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of the same idea of like welcoming whatever Vedana arise and be like, okay, pleasant, pleasant, neutral? <laughs> <laughs> As a training, um, we want to adopt the sense that our heart and mind are like a guest house where many things are coming to visit. And it can 
the, the guest house model doesn't allow for skillful and proactive and um, wise responses. So there's definitely room for not just being open to whatever, but the training is to at first be open to whatever, so we expand our capacity to meet experiences. And then when you begin to respond to experiences, you'll find that it's not um, either compulsive, there's not giving up, and you actually can make your life and the lives of other people much more uh, productive, um, happy, you can spread well-being, but not from a compulsive place, but from a place of choice and wisdom. But the training is to, at first, open yourself to experiencing the stream of, of, of the realm you're in, of uh, current experiences, before you quickly go to choices, because you're probably wire, um, strengthening old habits if you respond too quickly. And yet some of those quick responses, when you feel into them, they're actually appropriate. So not all older responses are negative, but you want to have more choice and uh, be able to see them, see what your responses are. Um, so I'm going to use the analogy again of, uh, I'll use the analogy of a fish tank. <clears throat> so um, you can have pristine water and you can have fish that are fighting inside of it, um, fish that are kind of in it. So the objects in the tank can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. They can be fighting, just floating, or even enjoying each other's company. <clears throat> But there's also a Vedana quality to the tank, whether the water is uh, pleasantly clear, mildly murky, or um, too hot. And so one of the things we are about to explore tomorrow um, <laughs> is what is the, the mental emotional space different from the objects. So I can have the space of anger, and it can go to many different places. And if I'm in an angry mood, where my mind will wander will tend to be from one angry situation to another angry situation to another angry situation. And then I can try to change the object so I think of something different, but I, the mood itself continues. And so there's, there's two layers happening. There's what your attention is landing on, and then there's the space of the heart and the mind that are attending what your attention's landing on. So you can be in a loving space, attending something unpleasant. You can be in a fearful place, attending something pleasant. And there's a difference between um, how we are f feeling, um, what, what emotions are present, what qualities of mind are present. That can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, independent of the objects that come through it. But one of the trainings are, is that you can, <clears throat> if you change the objects, you might change the mind. And that's what the loving kindness practice is, is we bring forward memories and connections that um, we have easy love for. And when we bring up those 
objects of our attention, it begins to influence the space of the heart and the mind. And so that's, that's how they are related. Um, that's one of the ways they're related. But there uh, is a Vedna quality. And so today, <clears throat> um, we're going to look at Vedna. We'd see if you can find Vedna in both places. And I'll, when I guide the meditation, it might be more obvious that you can find something painful in your body, yet feel a type of well-being. Okay, I can actually be okay, even though there's some pain in my body. So the body, the object, has a painful quality to it. But the heart and the mind don't have to also be averse or agitated or impatient. Those tend to have, the heart qualities of those tend to be unpleasant. The language of the sutta talks about there are these three Vedanas, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And then it goes down in the second part of the paragraph and it talks about worldly pleasure versus unworldly pleasure. Worldly neutrality versus unworldly neutrality. Worldly pain versus unworldly pain. And the unworldly is <clears throat> through meditative uh, cultivation so that it's not, um, it's not common. Most people, if the object is unpleasant, the mind is unpleasant. And people only know how to find happiness through pleasant objects. Whereas we want to become independent of objects so that we have neutral or pleasant heart, mind, no matter what we're encountering. And it's not by becoming aloof it's actually by strengthening our capacity to be intimate and still find that we have a capacity. We have a capacity of um, the ease of having a neutral, calm mind or an actual mind that's full of um, you know, positivity, even if what we're experiencing has a range of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral in it. So. That will become more obvious as we play with it um, over the course of the day, the morning and the day. Um, let's at least, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, in, in some ways we, we have been, but I can try to pass through it in another way. So, if um, <clears throat> I once was studying nonviolent communication, and part of that is the ability to identify the emotions you're feeling in a particular moment. And then they gave us a list of 5,000 English words for different subtleties and shifts of emotions, but they can cluster around anger or fear or joy or grief. But then there are all these different nuances within that. And this is where it gets really like a fascinating thing to explore is that, I might actually make this more complicated, but it actually gets this intricate, not complicated. I, have, I still have grief. 
over a dog that I had in college and how much I love that dog and that he died young, um, there's still a fresh grief. And yet there was a time when that grief was unpleasant, but now it's sweet. I love that I love that dog and I am still sorry that he died young. So there's a, va- there's a slightly unpleasant Vedna through the memory that the dog died and there's some grief around that. There's some grief around the idea that I didn't take care of him as well as I could, even though I know that's not true. That idea comes through and that idea has an unpleasant taste to it. But the missing of him now is actually when my mind wanders through that territory, I often, my body opens up, my heart opens up, and I just love loving that dog. So that grief, when he first died, was really unpleasant. I was sort of swept up into a type of forlornness that I couldn't get out of for weeks. And months later, I was still kind of like, hard to even think about the dog without going into like a really deep depression grief. <clears throat> Much more than when my grandfather died. I don't know what, why I was more connected to that dog. So the emotions will have also these different qualities of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And maybe rather than talking about it, through practice, you'll begin to be able to taste it. And the silly analogy is that if you had a, um, like a, if you had Thai iced tea, you ever had Thai iced tea? <laughs> so they usually have like the condensed milk on top and then the tea on the bottom. <clears throat> and you can swirl it so that you get a gradient of pure tea on the bottom, pure condensed milk, but then there's all the, and one of the things I like to do is take a little coffee straw, dip it all the way down and you taste the tea at the bottom. Then you raise it up and you can taste any combination and you can taste it Rather than making it all homogenous and tasting one thing for the entire drink, you can actually keep moving the straw around and getting a bunch of different flavors. (laughs) What we're doing with mindfulness is that you're moving the straw through the stream of experience. We're just on a boat streaming through time. And what the Buddha's doing with his sutta is he's pointing out different parts of the stream that have usually been unconscious. And so he's like, well, I've never put the straw there before. And he's like, this is actually an important place. So train in this. Put the little coffee straw right in and then taste the Vedana quality of an in-breath. It's pretty neutral. Oh, but right at the end, there's this little twinge of pain. Okay, so it's mostly neutral, tinge of pain. Move the coffee straw around. Yeah, a thought came through. And it was how much I missed my parents. Oh, that was kind of the Vedana quality, a little unpleasant, actually, no, I was, that actually was kind of sweet. There was a sweetness in there, okay? That's the Vedana quality of that. Sitting in meditation and realizing how much social injustice there is. Very unpleasant, and then the mind might go into a type of um, depression, or it's like, okay, wow, there's a lot of very strong Vedana to, to taste in this. And then there's a sense of, how do I meet this? And then you relax a little bit, open up, and you say, like, actually, I'm inspired. I'm going to do something about this. And so the object hasn't changed, but the mind going into its 
um, its frustration, its uh, shutting down. And then it reopens up, and even though none of the social injustice has actually been changed, five minutes ago versus ten minutes later, there's a different quality, and you start feeling like um, enthusiasm, like we're, we can do something about this. And so the mind space begins to change. And so we're floating this right now. There are four foundations, um, and there are four places where we're going to heighten our intimacy within the stream of life experience. And we're drawing these places out because this is usually where we get confused. Out of confusion, we do something compulsive, something really unexamined, thinking we're actually moving towards happiness. And finally, we've actually set ourselves up for suffering. And so the more we um, know the stream of our experience, the better we navigate it so we can be more productive in cultivating true well-being versus temporary well-beings that fall apart because they couldn't give us what we were looking for. So that's the wisdom within the stream of experience. So as we practice, you're actually going to get better at asking this question, remembering to ask the question, what's the Vedana quality? What's the predominant Vedana quality of this experience? And you'll find that sticky thoughts tend to be pleasant or unpleasant. Neutral experiences tend to bore us, so we don't know how to be intimate with them. So we tend to kind of get bored of neutral, have some type of flinch or attack on what's unpleasant, and a type of um, pursuit and and an enchantment with what's unpleasant. Those are the unconscious tendencies. I think it's a part of the brain. (laughs) Um, Intuition, as as you, there's a a factor of mind that's called panya, and factor of heart and mind, it's wisdom. And as we get more and more perspective, our knowing gets very fast, and our knowing is drawing upon. Um, uh, a greater stream of waking experiences. And so then you can know things quicker than you can cogitate on them because the wisdom faculty, the love faculty, all these beautiful faculties are the operating system. And so we actually don't have to think through something. The heart and mind actually gets quite quick. And there's bad intuition and there's good intuition. And we are, as we cultivate a freer heart and mind, our intuition tends to be more positive, um, more productive, more accurate. Mm-hmm. But that is a, that's not part of faith, exactly. Yeah, good intuition is uh, coming from panya. From what? It's a Pali word, panya. It means wisdom. For any of us, that becomes a like a noun. It's actually it's a it's a mode of mind and heart to have integrated a lot of experience, so that um, you're living with wise perspective in more and more circumstances. And some of that might take reflection, but some of that might be really beautiful intuition, where you can't quite see 
how you cognitively come to, came to an understanding, but the heart knew something quickly. I'd like us to, uh, to do Vedana practice, and to do that, let's just stand up for a moment and alleviate our bodies from their any sitting stress. If we can create a new file.